0: Um, and that's all the announcements. <clears throat> if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, that is where we will begin this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 and then in chapter 10, Paul has spent a good portion of time talking about Christian liberty. Uh, we think of liberty, and many of us might even hearken to what uh, the people were looking for when they came to the United States and and actually started this country. They were looking for freedom, and in particular, many of them were, most of them were looking for freedom to worship their God. They didn't want to be controlled by the church or the state church, and so they were called Protestants. But they came over and they started this nation so that we could have the freedoms to do what we believed in. And so, because of that desire for freedom, it's already intrinsic to who we are. We like to have our rights. We would like to have our freedoms. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talked about those freedoms, and he said, if my freedom, me practicing my right as a Christian, I'm free from the law, I no longer have to follow a system of do's and don'ts, but Jesus paid it all, my sin is paid for, I'm cleansed, I'm free to live however I want in Christ. But what the scriptures also teach us is if that we are living however we want, the main purpose in our life is to glorify God. And if we want to glorify God, one of the ways that we can glorify God with our liberty or our freedom is by laying down our rights as Jesus did, our example, in order to not stumble our brother or sister in Christ. And the particular thing he was talking about was whether or not it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, to us, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot, but in that day, the biggest and most important and the most exciting things going on in their culture were happening in the pagan temple. And I would kind of equate it to, and I'm not demonizing it, I'm talking about the, um, consider like a family fun center. They got go-karts, they got bowling, they got food, and they got all that stuff, and people want to go there. Now, we don't all get to go there all the time because we'd be broke, and we wouldn't, nobody can afford that. I mean, you go in there, and you start paying for tokens, and even if you have the cover charge that covers as many go-kart rides as possible and as many bowling games as possible, you spent a chunk of change per person. What, like 14 bucks or something if you go with the group? So that's a lot of money. Plus, if you want to get anything extra, and so, but in that day and age, it wasn't. They weren't going to the movies. They weren't going to, uh, you know, the, the IMAX to see Star Wars. They weren't going to the Family Fun Center. They would go to the pagan temple where the the, the goings on were <coughs> happening. It was exciting. There was flashy lights. Uh, everybody, everybody who was anybody was there, and so that was the center of their culture, especially at night. So for them to not eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols was a big thing. They could get it cheaper, and many of the meats were actually a little bit better. And so what they would have to do in order to not stumble a brother that came out of pagan idol worship is they would have to pay more for their food. Now, nobody does that. You know, if I can go to Aldi's and get my meat cheaper than if I go to Walmart or, or Schnooks or wherever, then I'm going to do that because I want to make my money go as far as I can. But for them, it might stumble somebody in their faith. And so what Paul said is, all things are lawful, go for it. But if it's going to cause somebody to stumble, you might consider whether or not the Lord would have you lay down that right to do so. And so Paul talks about Christian liberty, our freedom. We don't have to earn salvation anymore. But there are some things that perhaps it would be better for us in our Christian walk If we'd be willing to lay them down, not only for the sake of our brother or sister, but also so that we wouldn't be ensnared, that we wouldn't kind of get back into the things that we were doing before Christ. And so in chapter eight, he talked about that, but it kind of bled over into chapter nine, because in chapter nine, he points to himself and he says, look at my life. And he talks about his rights as an apostle of God. He said, I have rights to do a lot of things. And he got into the particulars. I have the right to take a believing wife and take her with me on my missionary journeys. I have a right to take payment from the local churches so that I can be freed up from having an extra job and and I can go and share the gospel with all those who would hear. I have a right to do these things, Paul said, but I'm not gonna take those rights because I don't wanna hinder you all from hearing the gospel. See, even in that day, there were people that were making merchandise of the gospel. They were being paid and many people would look at them and go, Oh, well they're just in it for the money. Look at how well they live, or look at how they don't have to work, and they just share the gospel all day and they get paid. And so Paul said, you know what? I'm not going to have anybody doing that. My boast is going to be in the Lord providing for me. So what I'm going to do in all night instead of sleeping is I'm going to go make tents. I'm going to sell them. I'm going to get a little bit of sleep. And then all day long I can share the gospel free of charge so that I don't stumble you Corinthians who all you can see is dollar signs. I want you to be unhindered from hearing the gospel of Christ and I want you to see that it's free of charge because to them it was a stumbling block. They loved money. They loved affluence. And it would be a snare to them if they saw someone who was proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus that had any money or was of means. So Paul says, I lay down that right. And he says there in verse 15 of uh, 1 Corinthians 9, he says there, I have used none of these things, none of these rites, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my (coughs) boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity has been laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. So he's going to talk about rewards today. If I do it willingly, if I surrender my life, my calling, my impetus, everything that makes me go. If I give that to the Lord and say, Lord, you tell me what to do and I will go do it. Then I have a reward that is in heaven. Jesus said this. He, does, he said, don't store up treasures where moth and rust destroy, but store up your treasures in heaven. And one of the ways that Paul did this is he said, Lord, I surrender my rights, my will to whatever you want me to do. And by doing that, he was able to be used in a mighty way by God. He says, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. He says, for though, verse 19, I am free from all men, In other words, I don't serve anyone else. I serve (laughs) Jesus alone. I'm free from man's opinion of me. I think that's important. A lot of us struggle with that. We really care what other people think. Even us that are very hard-willed and we're like, got this big veneer up. We're like, I don't care what other people think about me. I would bet that most of you do, just like me. You really care what other people think. And so that's a big idol you got to struggle with. And Paul says, I'm free from all men. I need to remember that daily myself, Paul says. He says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And then he goes on this list. He talks about these different groups of people. He's become all things to all men so that some might be saved, as many as possible. He says, to the Jew, I become as a Jew. I make sure I don't stumble them by walking into their house and leaving my shoes on or walking into their house and eating food that's unclean in their eyes. I will do all I can to not stumble them so that I can tell them about Jesus. He says to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law towards God. In other words, I'm not going to live in a lawless or a sinful way. But he says, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. He's talking about the perfect law of liberty. The law that says, I am free in Christ, and I can do anything I want as long as I'm doing it to glorify God, but if it's going to stumble someone else, it's the law of love. I'm not going to do this thing because it might hinder someone else from seeing Jesus or seeing Jesus in me. Here's the main goal, though, that I might win those who are without the law to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now Paul's not talking about himself being the Savior, but so that by all means, anything in his life that is a possibility that God can use to draw people to Jesus, he says, Lord, it's yours, use it however you want. If I'm supposed to lay down my rights, cool. If I'm supposed to go ahead and be okay with With eating something that's unclean, even though I'm from a Jewish background, then that's cool too. It's not about me anymore. Now, that's hard. Because most of my life is about me. And what the Lord says is, it's no longer you who live, but it's I who live in you. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's filled us with His life. We died to sin, and we are alive now in Christ. And so it's no longer I who live, but it's Him who lives in me. And so if it's Jesus who lives in you, Jesus was never about himself. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He never cried out for his rights. Even when they were taking him to the cross, he didn't say, hey, I'm the king. I'm the Lord of lords. No, he was like a lamb led to slaughter and he didn't open his mouth. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He didn't cry out for his rights, but he laid them down willingly for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the safety, for the keeping of his sheep. And so Jesus laid his life down in order to save his flock. And by doing that, he gave us an example and Paul is following this example. Now, this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. In that verse, in verse 23, Paul says, I do this for the gospel's sake. I'm not becoming all things to all men so they'll like me, I'm becoming all things to all men so that they'll see Jesus. If you're starting to compromise in your life in some way so that people will like you, so then you can lead them to Jesus, that's not what Paul's saying. If you're becoming all things to all men leads you into a sinful lifestyle where you're just continually going places that you shouldn't be and you're convicted about, then people won't see Jesus in you. They'll just see compromise and hypocrisy. Paul's saying, I became all things to all men for the gospel's sake, for the sake that people would know Jesus. And he says also that I may be a partaker of it with you. Because if Paul is willing to lay down his rights and humble himself, he realizes that that's going to keep him humble. And we all need to be kept humble. So he continues in verse 24, and he starts to make these analogies about running a race. So in verse 24, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race... All run, but only one receives the prize. He says, run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown as Christians. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he's talking about running a race. Now, I know Stephen will get a kick out of this because he's done a lot of training recently. But we all know that anyone who wants to compete in any sort of competition has to do some preparation. To compete in anything, you have to do preparation. Now, Paul's alluding to in the Corinthian culture... Something like the Olympics. It was called the Isthmian Games. And in the Isthmian Games, this was second only to what we know today as our Olympics, where the whole world gets involved, and they all compete as countries against one another. And in Paul's day, there were lots of sports going on. They just weren't televised. And you would go to these sports events, and in order to compete in the Isthmian Games, you couldn't just show up and go, hey, I'm a runner, I want to run. You had to qualify And one of the ways you had to qualify is you had to show those who were running the competition that you had been training for 10 months. 10 months, continuously, you had to train. Now, in order to just take, for instance, a run, in order to do that, you have to make your body do things that many of us believe that our bodies could not do now. You have to subject it to what we would consider punishment to do that. Running is punishment to the body if the body is used to sitting on the couch. I took a load of wood yesterday, one rank, that's it, off of a trailer and put it on my porch. I punished my body to do that. Now, to Jesse in the back who just split 3 ranks yesterday probably, that would be nothing. He was splitting it. I was just carrying it. But our bodies are way more capable than we believe that they are. But we have to be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable. In order to make them do that. And I'm going to be the first to say, I don't like to do that. I would much rather relax on the recliner. Kelly got me this really nice recliner. I don't like leaving the thing. But if I will do it, I'll be more able to do other things. And so, what Paul is saying here is anyone who runs in a race, they all run, but only one will receive the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize, is what Paul's telling the Corinthian believers. Run in a way that you may win. He's not wanting them to compete in the race. Anybody can compete in a race. Only certain people can win. And in order to prepare, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. So a runner, in order to get ready for the race, he has to practice temperance or self-control. He's not going to be eating you know, big barbecue beef sandwiches every day. And he's not going to be drinking Mountain Dew constantly. He's going to lay aside his right to eat certain things so that his body will be in a healthy condition. And when he wants to run and he tries to draw more strength, he's got enough protein, he's got enough greens in him so that when he goes to run and he asks his body to push a little harder, that the energy is there. His gas tank is full with good fuel. And in the same way in this Christian life, in order to not just compete, but to compete for the prize and win it. This Christian life is a race and it's not a sprint. It's a long distance run. It's one of those where we have to keep going day in and day out. And what we are always afraid of is that we'll mess up. But the Lord is with us and he gives us the strength. And the way that we compete is not by eating certain foods, but it's by daily taking in and consuming the bread of life. The water that comes from the rock of God. And as we eat those things, what we'll find is we'll have a well-balanced diet. We'll be instructed in how we are to carry ourselves through this life. And we'll be able to compete in a way where we're going to win. Paul says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. He knows that the prize he can compete for is something he will get if he'll fight. But he says also something that I think is interesting. Verse 25 Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, and they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Now, what was the crown in those days? It was kind of a wreath, just like we see in the Kentucky Derby. They put this big wreath of these beautiful flowers in a perfect arrangement. They put it on you. What happens to flowers after a couple of days after being plucked from the ground? They They perish. They die. They wither. They fall off of their stem. They're no longer pretty. They're kind of wrinkled and shriveled. And they're beautiful when they're beautiful, but they perish. It doesn't last. It fades. And that glory that people get when they compete in a, in a race and they win, everybody's excited. But then there's like, okay, you're going to run next year? You're going to run next year? Because it always fades. You have to keep going and you have to keep racing again. But Paul says the, the crown that we are running for is one that is imperishable, the crown of life, this this crown that apparently has nothing to do with our salvation, it has everything to do with rewards that we will obtain by the way that we run the race of faith in this life. And once we die, the race is over. We no longer can earn rewards. And these rewards, we're not going to be up in heaven with our big trophy room These rewards will be things that we'll be able to obtain. God will give them to us. And at that moment, we're going to realize who really deserves them. And we're going to cast them at the feet of our king. There's a song that says, we fall down and we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. And that's what it's talking about. The crowns that we obtain by running this race of faith, they're given to us. And then we give them to the one that really deserves them. Because not only does he give us salvation He gives us the faith to believe in salvation. He gives us the steadfastness, the the discipline to be able to continue to go. He gives us the ability to to surrender our will to his. And so he says, I do all these things. Verse 26 says, I run thus not with uncertainty and I fight not as one who beats the air. He's not fighting against something that really means nothing is what he's saying. He's not competing for a prize that really doesn't mean anything. In verse 28, or excuse me, 27, he says, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He says, I discipline my body. How do we discipline our bodies? How do we, he says there, bring it into subjection. That phrase to bring your body into subjection means I lead it around like a slave. I make it surrender to my will. I make it do what I want it to do. And the idea is there, he's not overcoming by his own power, but he's saying that Christ in me, the Holy Spirit, is the one that's supposed to be in control of my life now. But I'm still carrying this body of flesh that has desires and wants, and it tries to tell me that the things that it wants, it not just wants them, but it needs them, and it tries to conquer me, and it overcomes what I know I'm supposed to do. And Paul says, I don't let it. I discipline it. I tell it no. We could, after the holidays especially, I, I know that I need to tell my body no sometimes. There are still bowls of sweets that keep showing up at our house. And my wife the other day, we had this big bowl of sweets. Rebecca brought over and we ate a bunch of them and we froze some of them. <coughs> but there were some we left out on the table and Kelly looked at me and she goes I, I don't have enough self control. Get this out of here. Take it to work. And it's wonderful food. So then, uh, then it's sitting at my desk. While people are coming by going, can I have some of this? I'm please, take it. You know, it's it tastes wonderful, but get it out of here. I'm going to, you know, and um it's a blessing, but it's also something that we have to we do have to be temperate. We do have to say no to our flesh. Our flesh wants things that are not good for us physically, and our flesh wants things that are not good for us spiritually. I am free in Christ, right? I can't do a minutia of a work to add to my salvation. Positionally, I am already sealed for heaven. Jesus paid it all. When he was on the cross, he said, It is finished. But I wrote some notes here. I have freedom in Christ because of that. In the games Paul is talking about, a person, excuse me, I was going to talk about liberty. We are at liberty in Christ to do anything we want. We are at liberty in Christ that if we sleep in on a Sunday morning, do we lose our salvation? No. No, because our salvation is not based upon works. Because if it was, we could brag about it. Hey, I got up this morning and went to church. I'm going to heaven and you're not, right? Right? We don't ever say things like that because we know better, but sometimes we can kind of feel like that. Hey, I did it today. Well, if you did anything, God did it. But we are at liberty in Christ to sleep in on a Sunday and skip church. We're at liberty in Christ to not read our Bible every day. We don't have to do that. It doesn't save us. We're at liberty in Christ to not give thanks for what God provides on our plates or in our paychecks. We don't have to give thanks. God gives us the ability through grace to... Like, we don't have to. We're at liberty in Christ to do so many things, but taking advantage of these liberties in the wrong way will stunt your growth as a Christian. Taking advantage of these liberties in the wrong way, they will even hinder you from growing. If you are growing a garden, you do certain things to make sure that it produces fruit. You make sure that the soil is good. You fertilize You water. You make sure it's in the sunlight. And there are things that we can do in our lives. We don't have to do them, but we can do them in order to produce fruit. And the whole end result is to glorify God, not to glorify self, not to say yes to your flesh. And so Paul here, he says, there are things that we can do, but not all the things that we can do are good for us. We need to be in the body of Christ. We need, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. But on a Sunday morning, I'm with everyone else. My flesh says, it would be really nice to sleep in today because you've got to go to work tomorrow. It would be really nice if I could just stay home and mow the grass in summertime, obviously. You know, I, I would love to stay home and, and have an extra day to sleep in and hang out with my, my family at the house. I'm not doing this. I'm not coming here on a Sunday morning just because I'm the pastor. I'm coming here because God gave me to, this to do. This is my part in the body of Christ. Everyone has a part in the body of Christ. Mine's more visible than some. But if I will do what God's given me to do, then what it will do is it will continue to get all the nastiness out of my life, and God will use it to refine me and bring glory to His name through me just subjecting my will To me saying no to my flesh and saying yes to God. That's what we were singing in that song. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'm trading my my sorrow, trading my shame. I'm giving my identity to you. I'm no longer identified by my hobbies. I'm no longer identified by what people think of me. I'm identified by who I am in Christ. So Paul says we can do things, anything we want, but he says I choose to discipline my body To lead it around like a slave, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now the idea is not about being disqualified for salvation. The idea is being disqualified for rewards. Because everyone who competes in a race, to stay on that analogy, has to compete according to the rules. And if we break the rules during the competition, we're disqualified from receiving the end result, the reward. So he gives examples in 1 Corinthians 10. He gives Old Testament examples of Israel. The nation of Israel was given to us as an example of what the life of faith should look like for a Christian. He says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. So without us realizing it, he may be switching to something that we're not aware of, but to his readers, they were well aware of what he was talking about. He says all our fathers meaning those who went before them in faith as the nation of Israel. They were under the cloud all passed through the sea all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ but with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So in this example, he's talking about the nation of Israel. They had experienced miraculous things that God did for them. One of the things that God did for them when they were brought out of Egypt, the story of Moses bringing them away from the slavery, they were slaves in Egypt. That was a type of sin. We were enslaved to sin before Christ. And then Moses, the deliverer, came. He spoke to us and led us out. Now we know that God, through Moses, did... Lots of plagues on the nation of Egypt to get them to let his people go. And they refused. And finally, they let him go. And as they were brought out, they practiced Passover for the first time. And then they crossed the desert and they got to an impasse, the Red Sea. They get to the Red Sea. What are they going to do? They can either go around, which was quite a journey, or they could pass across. Except they didn't have a boat. And it was not just the Reed Sea like many modern-day liberal theologists would say. They would say that it was the Reed Sea and it was really only knee-deep because if God made the water go across, they could have just walked across. They didn't need God to make a dry path. But what the Bible teaches us is that God told Moses, lift up your arms and I'm going to do something amazing. And he parted the Red Sea and they crossed through as if on dry land. So it wasn't just that all the water was removed and it looked like Lake Killarney when they drained it and it was all muddy and animals got stuck in it, but it was dry enough that they were able to walk across on dry land. So they passed through the Red Sea, a type of baptism when we are allowing ourselves to go under the water and then be raised up in Christ. Someone else has to lift us. God had to part the waters for them to be set free. But here's the other reason they didn't go around the Red Sea. They were being chased by the Egyptian soldiers in chariots. They were walking. Their enemies were chasing them in so, in chariots. And so as they're being chased, Moses lifts up his arms according to the command of God. The water is parted. They pass through the Red Sea. They get up on the other side. And meanwhile, the Egyptians... <laughs> I, I would have been afraid to do this, but the Egyptians chased them across the Red Sea, and when all the Israelites were outside the water on the other side, every single one of them made it, what happened? The Lord let go, and all the water drowned the Egyptians. They found archaeological evidence of the chariots and the weapons in the Red Sea. I don't know how much more evidence people need of the miraculous happening in the Old Testament, but apparently they need more than hardcore evidence. But what happened is that was a type of baptism, These people saw the works of God, the mighty hand of God. They passed through the Red Sea miraculously, came to the other side. And then after all that happened, that miraculous stuff, they were led through the desert by a pillar of cloud, all passed under the cloud is what he says here. And under a pillar of fire by night, the cloud would guard them from the sun's harmful rays in the desert by day, keep them cool. And the pillar of fire by night would be like a nightlight. It would make sure that their enemies couldn't come in like a flood during the darkness and take all their goods or even harm them. And so God was their protector. It was a sign of his presence among them. And yet what it says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. So they're accountable for all these things that God did for them. They saw God at work they were going to be brought to the next thing to trust him. Well, when they got to the desert, there's no water and there's no food. And the first thing they said is, what'd you do, bring us out here to let us die? Why didn't you just leave us and eat it? At least there they fed us leeks and onions. I don't know how many people actually like leeks and onions. All that gives you is bad breath and indigestion. But God gave them at that point what they called manna. Manna means what is it? But what God called it was bread from heaven. They got tired of it, but God was giving them food every day. Every morning they'd wake up, and with the dew from heaven on the desert, they would have this white substance with coriander seed. It's kind of sweet to the taste. I think of like a graham cracker. And they would gather up enough for the day. They would eat it. And then the next day it would be there again. Some of them tried to get enough for two days because they weren't sure if it would show up the second day. They would gather too much and the stuff they tried to keep overnight would get rotten. And so God was showing them, you've got to trust me daily. Not every other day, not weekly. We want you to trust me daily. And as he did that, he provided food for them for 40 years. Now they were eating the same thing for 40 years. We kind of get tired of that, right? Same thing with the word of God. Ah, I've been reading the same Bible for 40 years. It's still bread from heaven. We are not to despise it. And in the same way, he provided for them from a rock. Um, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, but he hit the rock. And when he hit this rock, that rock was Christ. And out of that rock came rivers of living water, filled up enough water so that 1.2 million people would have enough water. God provided water in a desert where there was no water. So they had seen all of these things, and I've kind of hit it really quickly for sake of time. But they were provided for they had God's presence they were delivered by the hand of God alone they couldn't give the glory to Moses because they saw all that had been done and what it says there they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ Christ in the old testament verse 5 but with most of them even though they had seen these things with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness you see, what happened is after all those miraculous things, God said, I want to take you to the promised land. And so they, not trusting God, said, well, we'll send us some spies over to check out this land you have for us. And they sent 12 spies over. When the spies came back, 10 out of the 12 said, we can't do it. There's no way. We're scared. And two of them said, we can do this thing. If God's going to provide it for us, let's go do it. Let's go take the land. And those two men were the only two men that actually survived the 40 years in the wilderness and got to see the promise, got to receive the reward. Everyone else, it says most of them never entered the land. They all died in the wilderness. And that's what God told them. Because you did not believe my promise, you will perish in the wilderness and you will not receive the prize that I promised you. And so, that entire generation of Israelite people that saw all those miraculous things, all but two of them died in the wilderness and never entered into the promised land. Never entered. They never entered into abundant life because they didn't believe what God told them. And so, in the same way, God wants for us to be able to believe and to trust and not despise what He provides but to give thanks for it. Verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. See, the problem was not that God didn't show them amazing and miraculous power and show them He was able to deliver them. The problem was that they still had desires in their hearts that were not okay. They lusted after things that God didn't have for them. And so... In verse six through 10, he gives some more examples. He says, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complain. Now, I don't feel like I'm I'm probably the adulterer type and I don't struggle with sexual immorality anymore because God has changed that in me. But one of the things that I think we often look over is number 1 tempting God by despising what he provides. And also, he says there nor complain as some of them also complained. See, a lot of them they weren't worshipping false gods, but what really aggravated the Lord was that they were complaining. I struggle with complaining. That's one of the things I really have a hard time with. I complain and I despise what God gave me. And because of that, I can't be blessed by what God gave me. Uh, one of the things in Romans that marks the people that are destined for death and, and for destruction because they have rebelled against God is they weren't thankful. Simply, they weren't thankful. And so he says all these things and he gives all these Old Testament examples And just real quick, in verse 6, he talks about how they, um, they lusted after evil things. He says, don't become idolaters as some of them. He's referring to the moment where they had been delivered. They entered into the promised land. Or excuse me, they were still in the desert. God was giving the law, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He made his presence known to the Israelites. And during that time, there was lightning and thundering and there was this big dark cloud over the top of the mountain. And the Lord said, I'm going to speak to you my law. And they said, we're afraid. Let Moses go up there for us and we'll hang out down here and then he can bring the law to us. He can be our mediator. And so Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. And during that time, it was 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, they said, he's forsaken us. He's taking too long. Moses He brought us out here and he's just leaving us. And so what they did was they said, Aaron, help us out. We need a way to worship. And so Aaron took all of their golden rings, earrings, and and the money that they had been given from the Egyptian people. He melted it down and he made a golden calf. I call it the golden calf meltdown. And they took this golden calf and they started to worship it because that's how they thought they were to worship God. That's how they worshiped God in Egypt. But it was a false God. And so they had idolatry going on. And as they did this idolatry, what happened is they started to eat and celebrate God's deliverance. But as they celebrated, it says they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That word play is not like they went to the playground and started swinging on the monkey bars. They rose up and they caroused They committed sexual immorality as part of their worship of this calf idol they had made. And so he says, don't do that. And for the Corinthian people, they were in a culture where it was very easy to get into idolatry. And part of their worship of these false gods was that. It was sexual immorality. He says, don't give in to the temptation to worship like all the other people do. He says, don't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 people fell. See, sometimes when we get into things, it means not only are we disqualified from being a servant of the Lord, we are disqualified from receiving a reward, but we also sometimes, I believe, that God ends someone's life because he can't trust them to be down here and be his witness. And we see that in the beginning of the book of Acts where Ananias and Sapphira, they gave an offering to the Lord. And during that time, They gave an offering and they said it was everything from selling their property. And they lied to the Lord. Well, the Holy Spirit knew that they were only giving partial. They didn't have to give any of it. And so he called them out on it. If you're going to give an offering to the Lord, give it from a pure heart. And so the Lord took their lives so that all the people would fear the Lord, not in like being terrorized by him, but have a healthy respect for him that God is a God who sees all and he knows the intents of our heart. He wants his church to be pure. And so he's warning them that there are some things that are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He'll get into that into the end of this chapter. But here's the last point I want to make. Verse 11. All these things happen to them as examples. All these things happen to the nation of Israel as an example for us. And they were written for our admonition, for our learning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's giving us this as an example. Many people believe that the only way to learn things in life is to fail a whole bunch. And I used to believe that. But what God has done in his word is he's given us warnings. He's given us examples. People in the past have already failed the way that we try to fail and learn. Why do we need to keep repeating the same failures over and over again instead of just looking at their failures and drawing instruction from them? Paul says the Old Testament was given to us as an example and they were written for our teaching upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God wants to bless us through his word. Therefore, verse 12, the first rule of Bible study is if it says therefore, try to figure out what it's there for. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The people in Corinth were practicing all these things because they thought, hey, it's really nothing and it's not going to get me in trouble. He says, take heed, listen closely to the Lord lest you fall. Don't get involved, don't get intertwined with these things because though they are, you're free to do them, not only will they stumble others they can cause you to stumble again. You can go back into the temptations that you've been freed from. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So don't tempt yourself just to be tempted. And realize that if God allows you to be tempted in some way, he will also give you a way of escape. And God, through his word, gives us Israel's history as an example of what can happen to us in our relationship with God. It was written down for us to learn from and be warned. We don't need to repeat their failures. This is one of the reasons that we as a church have decided we're going to teach the whole word of God. The Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. You'll see as you read the New Testament that constantly they're drawing illustrations and conclusions from what happened to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And it's necessary to produce healthy, mature, whole, complete Christians. The whole Bible. That's why we teach it systematically. All scripture, 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, it's God breathed. If it's in here, there's a reason for it. There's something we can learn from it. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. We all need correction. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. With this kind of warning, with their folly as our example, we have much more responsibility to take full advantage of His Word. Turn with me to one more place, 2 Peter chapter 1. It's after Hebrews, it's after James, it's after 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes about God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. It says this, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, excuse me, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of God's divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That word lust comes up. The desire for things that God doesn't have for us. Verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, the word being kind of like discipline, disciplining our bodies, add to your faith virtue, to virtue add knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. Be willing to give things up to self-control, perseverance, the ability to run a long distance, and perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. It's all for the sake of love. For if these things are yours, which they are, they've been given to us in Christ, and they abound or overflow, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And that's the purpose. Anyone who has these things is blessed, but he who lacks these things has nearsightedness issues. They're thinking about the short-term versus the long-term. And I heard a guy the other day, he he took a rope. It was Francis Chan. He took a rope and he had a 50-foot rope, okay? And the first 4 inches of it, he put white tape around it to to basically give the illustration that this 4 inches of this 50 foot rope is your life now. And the 50 foot rope is eternity. And many people who are not believers in Christ that don't have eternity in their minds ahead of them, they are spending their entire time preparing for this last inch of a 4 inch rope. Meanwhile, they've spent zero time preparing for eternity. What God has given us to do, his purpose for us in this life, to glorify him through Jesus Christ is what's gonna prepare us for eternity, the long run. And so what God says is do everything, be diligent to prepare for eternity by letting God have this four inches of your rope. And if you let him have the four inches of your rope, the 50 years or the 50 feet or the eternity really, it's immeasurable amount of time, you will have no regrets and you will be with him forever. And the purpose that God created us for was to enjoy him forever. But when sin entered in, here's what happened. We were no longer in fellowship with him. We couldn't even enjoy him for five minutes. And we desired, we lusted after something else. And what God says is, you need to lay down your lusts and your desires and and despair. Quit despising what God has provided for you through Jesus, and be prepared to enjoy Him forever. And so, um, as we think about that, we think about the new year, and we have communion before us, but we also um, need to think about those that will take along with us, through our faith or through our disobedience. Uh, I have too many people in my life that have followed me through all my years of disobedience, that are still walking without a relationship with God. And have all these people that God wants me to invest in. And, and point them to Jesus. And many times I get so worked up about what they're doing. And I don't consider where am I at right now. And the Lord wants us to consider how are we being effective or ineffective for Him. And so as we take communion today. Um, before we get started I'm going to lead a song. And, uh, and then we're going to, I want all of you. You guys too, to be able to come up and and take communion. And while I'm singing this song, just take some time and and reflect upon all the things that God's forgiven you. Where you started, where you are now, where he wants to take you, and what this year is going to look like. We just spend some time with the Lord and ask him, Lord, what do you want from me this year? What do you want from me tomorrow? What do you want from me this week? And after you do that, take communion at your leisure. I want you to do it one-on-one with the Lord. And then after that, we'll close with the song of worship. But just make this a time of reflection, spending it with the Lord. Because if you will put Him first, giving up things so that others will see Him in you will be no problem. You'll be willing to lay down your life just like He did for you. So let's pray.